Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to Yes UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into the greatest UConn basketball games ever played. And uh, yeah, we got, we got a good one today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the 2014 Elite Eight game against Michigan State. Uh, Tim Fontenot is back. Uh, he covered this game for the Daily Campus. And uh, Tim, we were talking before we started recording, and uh, you, you said this is one of your favorite games ever. And uh, I, I feel like there's a lot of others who feel the same way because this game was this game was awesome. Um, I mean, I, I wasn't there in person, but man, just you know, watching it on TV was just unbelievable. And uh, from what I gathered, there was a ton of UConn fans there as well. So uh, you know, it must have been quite something to be at Madison Square Garden that day, huh? It was unbelievable. The the game itself, what it meant in terms of going to the Final Four, the setting being at Madison Square Garden, our, our second home, as DeAndre Daniels told me the day before, and as everyone already knew. Um, and then obviously everything from the past year, two years, with conference realignment, with the ban, with Jim Calhoun's retirement. I mean, it just, it all, it all everything seemed to be leading to that day. And to be able to come to Madison Square Garden and to be able to get back to the Final Four through all that was just, it all just became such an amazing moment for everyone to share in. I mean, it's so funny to think back is just like how improbable that whole run was. Like, I mean, obviously we've, you know, gone through a rough stretch with UConn basketball these last five years or so. But like at the time, I mean, it like almost felt like it could have just been Armageddon. And the fact that this team was able to accomplish what they did. I mean, you have, you know, you, you lose a Hall of Fame coach. So there's that. You have conference realignment. So you're not in like the historic conference. And now you're, you know, essentially playing in, you know, against mostly former Conference USA teams. So that's not good. Uh, you've you're coming off of some recruiting like just a recruiting scandal, and the year before you're banned from the postseason, so you don't even get to play in the Big East tournament for the last time, which was like just the biggest punch in the gut ever. I mean, any one of those three things could sink a program. They had to deal with all three, and they made the Final Four and won a national championship. I mean, it was unbelievable, and just even going more recently than all of that stuff that we've been talking about a couple weeks before that game, they got blown out at Louisville, like 81 to 48. And you were like, this team might not even make the NIT. Well, yeah, you know, actually you're right. They, they weren't, they weren't a safe bet. Were they, I mean, they they had to win a couple games in the uh, conference tournament to like be safely in. Right. Yeah. We weren't even sure, you know, when they got to the conference championship game, we were down in Memphis and we're like, you know what, they're probably going to get in, but at the same time, they they might not. And we were we were preparing for worst case scenarios and everything that could have gone into you know, every scenario that could have played out. And then ultimately, the best case scenario played out. Like literally the one scenario that probably shouldn't have played out where they get to be in New York for both round, both the first weekend and the second weekend is exactly what happened. Yeah, they they really really lucked out there. But it is funny just to imagine like at the time UConn is, you know, used to playing in the Big East. If you make the finals of the Big East tournament, not only are you a safe bet to like be in the tournament, but like you're probably going to be like a top 3 seed. UConn made the finals of the American Conference tournament and it they're on the bubble. I mean, th- and they won the national championship. So like that should have been a huge red flag to us, like right off the bat, like like and you know they're playing Louisville in the final, so like you know they're not even going to stick around. So 
Man, that was just such a strange time. And yeah. just this whole run was so gratifying and so much fun. And yeah, just the, the fact that they managed to wind up in New York of all places, it was just like, yeah, this is this is home. This is where we belong. Like, you know, in the NCAA tournament at Madison Square Garden with just a packed building, just all, you know, because they usually get shipped out west for these games. So to have one of these back home, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the time they're usually out in like Anaheim or Phoenix for most of the other, you know, regional finals they'd played in, right? Like basically yeah, we dating. totally ready to go west. And the thing about it being in New York City at Madison Square Garden was the demand for tickets from the Connecticut, from New York, all from like UConn fans all over the area drove the ticket prices up exponentially. Um, I actually wrote about this in the Daily Campus. I was able to find this column right before we started uh, from right before the Iowa State game. And I talked to a couple of my friends who one paid like $350 for the two sessions and another paid $571 to get in the building for both days. And I, when I, at the time that I wrote the column, the cheapest secondary market tickets that I could find were about $600, like $595, something like that. Meanwhile, in the Midwest region, you had a Kentucky-Louisville game lined up. You had Michigan in that region. And you could get into a session for the Sweet 16 for as cheap as 98 bucks. So, like, it was just the fact that they were playing in New York City and everyone just knew knows that's a UConn home game. That was, like, you. that was gold. Like, to get... To get your hands on those tickets was the rarest object you could find. You could seriously get into Kentucky Louisville for under $100. You're serious. <laughs> That's what I found. I, that was, I was stunned when I saw that. And I just, I remember as I'm writing it, I'm like, this is insane. Like, I, I, told, uh, I told Tyler Rolander that before. Uh, before the game, I, remember, I actually I posted it on Facebook and I or I saw something about the ticket prices and I saw that he reacted to it, um, like threw me a like or whatever. And so I was talking to him the day before the game for an interview, and I was like, "So you you're you're excited about that, huh?" And he goes, "Hey, I feel bad about how expensive they were, but man, that's UConn Nation for you. They're gonna pay the money and they're gonna get here. And even like I think the day of the Elite Eight game." Um, Metro North ran extra trains from New Haven like they do sometimes the the Yukon Express trains and people were just coming in mass from from the state it was incredible I I mean it's pretty remarkable and it's so funny like 500 600 dollars for a ticket like I bought tickets to uh, one of the uh, 2013 Stanley Cup final games uh, with the Bruins and Blackhawks I got two tickets uh, me and my dad 500 dollars each for oh a gosh. Stanley Cup final game and yeah. a UConn Elite Eight game or, you know, or whatever, maybe the, the two games for the weekend or whatever is like matching that, if not more. Yeah. <laughs> and like, by the it's way, incredible. Bruins, Bruins Blackhawks, like that's about as dope a matchup as you get. So like, yeah, that, worst that, series ever, but <laughs> yeah, we, we don't talk about the way it no, ended. Uh, anyway, um, so this game itself was amazing. So you know, yeah. my experience with this game was uh, I was actually down in uh, Savannah, Georgia, of all places. Oh. Um, my mom uh, moved down there after I graduated college, and we were there for like the whole week. So I was um, basically just like found 
this bar that I made my home the whole like you know Thursday through Saturday or Sunday or whatever. And so I watched both of the um, the Iowa State and the uh, Michigan State games there. And I distinctly remember that there was a dude wearing a Michigan State jersey and the other side of the bar. It was like one of those like T-shaped bars. So like he and I are practically facing each other. And we don't say a word to each other the whole time. I'm wearing like my uh, my 2009 uh, Jeff Adrian jersey. He's got, I don't know, some, it looked like a fairly recent one. One of the probably 2010 or 11 teams or something. And we don't say a word to each other. When UConn wins, he just gets up, comes over, and he just pats me on the shoulder. And he's like, good luck in the final four. And then he just peaced out. I was just oh, like, I love that. And I was like, man, this is great. But at the same time, those people in New York, my God. <laughs> Legends is going to be legendary after this game for sure. Oh man, and it was it was nuts in New York City. And then I remember on my way out of Madison Square Garden later that night, um, I was getting video sent to me from the middle of campus. And naturally, the middle of campus back in stores was a sight to behold. And I think I think it was after the Elite Eight game where everyone gathered around in the right outside the student union. And it's just a massive circle of hundreds of people doing the arm swinging thing that became a sensation on the bench that year. And just everyone doing it with the hoo, 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 and then just piling on top of each other afterward. It was just so cool to see how much it meant to everybody. That was one of my favorite UConn fan videos ever. It's like, that's one of those <laughs> things where you really wish you could be a part of that. Like, just being, I guess, like working the game like you were, how I was for the 2011 team, you get to see those moments. You're like, damn, that would have been fun. <laughs> yeah. No regrets, but time, we're living it. And it's like the coolest thing ever. Just a crazy little side story for me from that day was um, like talking about like being able to like the view that we had um, for the Iowa State game. Uh, my fellow uh, writer for the Daily Campus, Mike Pang, legend, uh, and myself, we were up on the Chase Bridge. So we had pretty much a bird's eye view of this Sweet 16 game. And so we figured, you know, we're the student, we're the student paper. We're going to be up there again for the Elite Eight. And so I'm getting ready to, getting ready before the game, just doing whatever I needed to do. And Mike comes over to me and he's like, I can't find our names on the seating chart. And I'm like, that's a problem. And I'm like, you know, I'm playing every scenario in my head. They, they forgot about us. We, something went wrong with our credentials, even though we're here. That's ridiculous. And so we go over and we pour over it for like five minutes and we can't find ourselves. Then one of us is like, is like, you know what? Let's just check the floor seats. And we were like the second row on the side opposite from the bench. Yes. Oh, we're on the floor. And so we, we walk out there, we're like shaking, we're on the floor in Madison Square Garden, and then we get to our seats, and we're just like, whoa, this is the coolest thing ever. So I I love that. I wasn't having any regrets about not being able to be part of those celebrations on campus. Yeah, man, that's good. You, you They treated you well for that one and for yeah, the perfect game. I'm very happy. So this game... I mean, you know, we're talking about how much fun it was and how much it meant, but the game itself was pretty pretty sweet, too. Um, and it's funny because, like, we talk about how basketball is a game of runs, and this game was, like, basically three distinct runs, and exactly. UConn had two of them, of course. Uh, the beginning of the game, it honestly looked like UConn might have ran them off the floor. It was really, really bad <laughs> how just <laughs> Michigan State could not buy a basket. UConn was making... 
at first they were making everything and then they kind of stopped making it but Michigan State still couldn't make anything either so UConn gets this big lead and then for like the middle like 20 minutes like the last 10 minutes of the first half and the first 10 minutes of the second half Michigan State just goes crazy they outscore him like 40 to 10 or something crazy like that and then yeah then UConn kind of just basically just takes it to them the rest of the way and uh it won't I it wound up being closer than I remembered it. Like I remember UConn pulling ahead by 10. And I don't remember Michigan ever actually getting within one possession, which they definitely were. But yeah, even then just like they just smoked them when the, they had the chance to tie or take the lead, force a turnover. And then that was kind of your ball game. So man, just like really an awesome game. And we'll kind of dive deeper into it, but just like that second half run when they really started to take control, did you, was there a sense that you had that it was like they were definitely going to win that game? Uh, the point where I thought that it was over was um, that sequence where first Shabazz made the ridiculous three, just a circus shot as he usually did. Um, he had a defender in his face and he just pulled up from way out, buries it, and then um, right after that, they get the turnover and he throws it up to Gafai who throws it down. And that's when they started to pull away a little bit. I think that made it like a six-point lead, something like that. But that was when the momentum started to shift again. And you just knew. You knew that this team could grind out wins. That's what they did all year. And that's that's when I knew. Yeah, that, that sequence that you just described has basically become the iconic sequence from the game. I mean, if you ever see a highlight, you always see the Gafai dunk. And it's a, yeah. it's a pretty sweet dunk and transition. <laughs> I want to shout out my boy Phil Nolan. Oh, he has a really good yes. one like that too. At the uh, so there comes a point where um, Michigan State has a chance to tie or take the lead, and they don't. And then you know there's a couple of uh, I think Shabazz may, gets fouled trying to take a three, and he makes all three. That was kind of what put it away. There was like 30 seconds left, but then Michigan does get one more real good look. Uh, Trice misses a three, and then whoever had the rebound just chucks it down to Phil Nolan, who's wide open, throws it down, and they're up by seven with six seconds left. And then the whole bench is just like, everybody's just kind of lost all their composure. It was a, just an absolute, it was on at that point. So I got a shout out that to Phil Nolan. Yeah, Phil Nolan. We love that man. He's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet in your life. Just truly a sweet giant. Uh, that produced one of my favorite broadcast moments of the game. Uh, I know you usually talk about the, the broadcast moments. And so Nolan gets the ball right around midcourt, and he's got Gafai to his right, and there's a defender in between them. But he, all he has to do is put the ball in front of Gafai, and Gafai can put it, put it down. And it, I think it was Raftery was like, why isn't he passing right now? Why didn't he pass that? And Nolan just throws a dunk down. And as I'm rewatching, I'm like, because he's Phil freaking Nolan. That's why. Yeah, I you know now that you mention it, he did kind of get upset with him. He's just like, "Oh, what's going on?" And then like, I I I love Vernon Villaraftery. They're like listening to these games. This is actually the second game in a row I've do, I've done on this show where they've commentated, and I, I love those guys. Oh, yeah. They're so much fun. But yeah, they were a little bit annoying there. But like, yeah, after they did the sensible thing and they basically shut their mouths for like five seconds to let the crowd noise sink in afterwards. So. Which is, you know, in a game like this, I mean, they, you know, props to them too. They kept on mentioning just how loud UConn's fans were, and I mean, you could tell. I mean, uh, you know, we a couple episodes, you, you know, Matt and I, Matt McDonough and I have done those, uh, the San Diego State and the Arizona um, 2011 tournament games, 
And this was right. like the polar opposite, where like in those games, Yukon was basically in a hornet's nest. And in this one, they were just like, it was, I don't know, whatever the equivalent analogy of just like their home crowd, just like absolutely crushing it. Uh, that was the thing about the start of the game, too. Um, when they went on that massive run to start the game, and it just set the tone in terms of who the actual home team was. Um, I think we had a big red moment in there. Um, it was just, it was truly special. That place, that's one of the things that I remember. Uh, one of the things that really stood out is that place was loud. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't have enough experience with Madison Square Garden to get a sense of whether or not that's normal. Like if the acoustics are really good like that. I can't imagine it's very loud like that for the Knicks these days or really any early <laughs> any days since like the 90s but I mean it's Yukon really shows up in that building and it's as loud as that place ever seems to get. Yeah man just okay so yeah so kind of just to run through the first half real quick so you know the Yukon has the huge run Michigan State's cold as ice and then it kind of flips and um I believe Michigan State finished the half on a 23 to 9 run. And there's like a stretch where UConn goes over seven minutes without making a field goal, which is weird because Michigan State had like two similar stretches like that. So, but yeah, so at halftime, you know, Michigan State's up by four and they had um, also just gone on a, a nine to nothing run to end the half too. So they, they UConn had maintained the lead for a lot of the stretch, but then uh, Harris, who was really good in this game, he's really the only Michigan State player who showed up, knocks down a three and then... Um, the game kind of just like, I don't know. It was like a weird like three and a half minute stretch of not much happening. But um, <laughs> what was your thinking at halftime? Like, did you feel good or was it a little bit uh, uneasy at that point? Um, felt a little uneasy. Uh, definitely wasn't as high on the Huskies at that point as I had been at the start of the game. Um, mind you, I did come in to the tournament picking Michigan State as my team to win the national title. UConn was only down by four. And I thought, you know, if if Napier and Boatwright can get going, then this can be a completely different game. And sure enough, I mean, Napier had a fantastic game in the end. Yeah, so the funny thing, now I'm glad you just brought that up as far as Michigan State goes, because they were a four seed, but like, it, you definitely got the sense they were a heavy, heavy favorite going into this game. But even like going into the tournament, I think a lot of people felt like they were way underseeded. And that makes me think like that region was stacked because, you know, you have Virginia, you know, who has, they're they're pretty much on their way up. So like, obviously we know what Virginia has been these past five or six years. So they're, this is like one of the first years where they, they're really, really good. Um, Villanova. So you kind of already beaten Villanova by this point, but it's so funny to think back at what Villanova was at that point. Cause obviously since then, like the whole rap on Villanova at that point was that they were basically a bunch of choke artists. They'd never really proven they could win. And, um, as a March madness, like, you know, fanatic like myself, that burned me big time. Once they actually started winning for real in 2016, I was like, yeah, I was exactly. like, they're like, Oh, these guys, they can't win big games. They never do. You kind yeah. that was the easiest seven, uh, two upset I've ever called in 2014. And then, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know how yeah, that story I was, ends. I was so high on Michigan state and I was feeling so good about my bracket too, to the point where I ended up, you know, I was in a all UConn fans pool and I still ended up finishing third, even though I didn't have UConn in the final four. And the only reason I didn't win it was because Wisconsin lost to Kentucky 
and I was so upset about it. You keep referencing this Yukon pool and you and I have definitely both been in that pool together for at least oh, the last like like six or seven years. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want, uh, I, I can... Michigan State team, that was that was a heck of a team. And that even that Sweet 16 game against Virginia is just one of the gutsiest wins. I've even They were only down four in the second half at one point and Virginia, I'm looking at the Ken Palm probability and Virginia was already 75% chance to win just because that's how Virginia was. And Michigan didn't, Michigan state didn't care. They went on this massive run and I think it was uh, Dawson had a huge game in the end. And then UConn was, he was completely silent against UConn. Yeah, actually really most of them were, I think uh, Harris was the only one who had, he had 22 points uh, I think Payne, um, I think he had 13. I don't think anybody else was in double figures. Um, yeah, just this this Michigan State team was for real, though. And it's like you just said, like they're when they got going, they were really hard to stop. And so that's why it was a little bit um, stressful when they, you know, in the second half, they start off um, on another big run. And uh, I think by the time they end up pulling ahead 32 to 23, about a little less than four minutes in. And at that point, it's like now we're looking at a 16 to two run dating back to like the last five minutes of the first half. So that's like, a, like 10 minutes of game time. And now they're up by, you know, they're almost up by double digits. It's not where you want to be if you're a UConn, which is why it was pretty, pretty satisfying when the very next thing you get is a 12 nothing run and seven straight minutes without a Michigan State field goal. Let's go. They're, that team's defense, when they got going and when they knew they had to grind out a win, that was a tough team to, to wear down on the defensive end of the ball. That was that was something, that second half, especially that run, as you just mentioned. That was just incredible. Yeah, and I mean, it was a solid run, too. I mean, I think, yeah, I just said 12 nothing. It was eventually 18-4, to with about nine minutes to play. So this is like, yeah, seven minutes of game time. And, you know, Michigan State's mostly just getting free throws. They eventually hit a three. So I like, you know, stopped keeping track of that run. But then, yeah, then you have the the sequence pretty much right after. It was that sequence we talked about before where Shabazz goes with the crazy three right in the dude's face. And then, yeah, the Duncan transition to Giffey. And um, yeah, so a seven point game. So 46-39, seven and a half minutes to play. And uh, yeah, then actually, I almost forgot, but Ryan Boatwright hits a three like right after this too. So it gets up to a 10 point game. So you pretty much flipped it. You've gone from down nine to up 10 in like not really all that much time. And, um, you know, that's the funny thing. Like these teams, uh, Michigan State and UConn were similar in that respect, where it's like when they started get when they got going, they were hard to stop. So the fact that UConn was kind of able to, you know, flip it like that on them was really was was it was huge. It's really kind of what gave them the the game at that point. So, what were you? Th- yeah, you know. So let's actually kind of stop here because the last like you know eight or nine minutes of the game are pretty interesting too. Um, so when when Shabazz uh, has the three, uh, Giffey has the dunk. When Boatwright hits the three, you know what was what was kind of the the vibe in the stadium it was like it, was this the loudest point in the game or was there actually like a louder part? From what I remember, this felt like the loudest part, and I think there was a just because there was a lot of emotion going into it, knowing what was about to happen or what could happen in the next few minutes. Um, I mean, everyone started to realize that this was something that could actually happen, and but then I think everyone still realized, you know, 
this is UConn. This is a very good team they're up against. Something could go wrong. So the more shots they made and the closer they got to the end of the game, the more hyped up the, the crowd got and the more everyone just started to realize that this was actually happening. So right after this happens, we have, you just mentioned, this is UConn, things could go wrong. Uh, Michigan State knocks down two straight threes. So that 10-point lead is down to four, and now we got yeah. about five minutes or so left, and it's uh, kind of game on. Um, so UConn holds them off. I don't believe Michigan State ever, they, they do not ever tie or retake the lead at this point. Um, but you eventually come to a situation where it's a two point game, 51 to 49. And, um, I think I've mentioned this a couple of times, but they have a chance to tie or take the lead. And, uh, I don't even remember who it was, but somebody just stuffed the guy as he goes to you know drive to the hoop and he just like kind of falls on the baseline kind of pathetically. And that was really, they never got a better chance than that. Uh, cause next thing, you know, Shabazz hits a two. Uh, Adrian Payne from Michigan State hits a couple of free throws. Now it's a two-point game again, but then that's when Shabazz got fouled on that three. Keith Appling fouls out, and that was really kind of the game at that point. This this team could finish like they more than any other UConn team that, that's ever made the Final Four or was ever a serious contender. Like a lot of those teams were weren't very good free throw shooting teams, but this one was as automatic as they've ever been. So once you when they had the lead, like you know, a four point lead or more with a minute left. I mean, forget it. They're not going to lose. And they, they obviously didn't lose, you know, at all in that scenario. They were automatic at the line too. That was another game. We talked about it against Kentucky when they didn't miss a free throw. And first of all, Michigan state only got to the line for eight free throws. UConn was 21 of 22 at the line and they made their last 20. I think Daniels missed the back end of his first trip to the line. And then they didn't miss from there. That was early in the first half. So that team just had ice in their veins, too. They knew how to put a game away. To see how few shots they missed from the line in that tournament, was they pretty much every game was one at the line. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I mean, that's that's the blueprint, right? I mean, it's it's so easy to say all you got to do is hit your free throws. But so many, even really good teams, just can't do it. I mean, we, we talked about in the championship game against Kentucky. I mean, they missed so many free throws, Kentucky did. And you figure if they make you know, most of them, if not all of them, who knows what happens, but yeah, yeah that's kind of, that's what made UConn special that year. Cause you know, we've talked that, you know, people have often talked about like which UConn teams stack up, you know, how well do they stack up against each other? I think, I think most people would agree. This was de- definitely the least talented UConn championship team or final four team, but the fact that they could just make all their free throws, it, that that definitely does set them apart for sure. It's something that they did better than anybody else. Yeah, and, you know, I think the leadership on this team went such a long way too. You know, the, that was the advantage they had over other UConn teams was that this is a team that got to march with champions on it and knew how to finish the game out. And guys who wanted to end their careers with that national title, especially what happened the year before so Napier wasn't going to go out with a loss Gafai wasn't going to go out with a loss uh, to a a lesser extent Olander even Um, you know Lasan Chroma stepped up from time to time in that tournament I mean everyone who everyone had a role to play and everyone knew the experiences of the past few years and knew how to get it done 
So um, what stood out uh, upon rewatch? Because um, you obviously were at this game. So having rewatched the broadcast, was there anything about it, you know, six or seven years later, however long it's been that you kind of just, uh, you know, noticed, uh, you know, rewatching the game? Um, well, the big one was how much of a home game it was. I think we, we can't talk about that enough, just what it's like to be in Madison Square Garden for a massive UConn game. Um, it's always going to be a home game for us. And that was something that really jumped out as we were watching. It felt like they were in Gamble as they were heading to the Final Four. Um, other than that, I mean, look, again, as we've talked about with this team winning the title, they were gritty. Um, they let Michigan State get on that run. They were still, they kept it close enough where they would be able to reset, lock things down on the defensive end, get out in transition, get to the foul line, hit big shots the way that Napier and Boatwright could. Um, it was just, this game was, to me, like the perfect game to watch to figure out what that year's team was all about. Yeah, that that's a, a good, I, I, I agree with you there. And it actually kind of segues well into my main observation this uh, team and this game especially, the the dribble drive was almost completely absent from their offensive arsenal. And, uh, you know, just having kind of now watched a bunch of, you know, different teams from different eras, it struck me like this team almost exclusively moved the ball just by passing it. You know, they would, you know, dish it inside, they would chuck it around, they would, you know, kick out and do stuff. But you almost like the thing that like Rip Hamilton perfected, which was just like drive in, drive in, you know, kick it out, you know, do put up a mid-range jumper. This team didn't do that at all. And Michigan State didn't do very much of it either. So it was interesting just from a stylistic perspective just to see, you know, kind of this specific version of basketball compared to, you know, what we've, you know, even the 2011 uh, UConn team did a decent amount of that too. So it was just uh, kind of funny to see just how it kind of played out uh, this game. Definitely. I mean, that that was such an interesting dynamic within this game was, like you said, like, we're used to seeing UConn teams go inside and this was a game that was very much one with in terms of shots falling or shots not falling. And in the end, UConn hit the shots they needed to hit. And I think that Napier circus three that we keep talking about, I don't even think that's the only one he made in that game. I think he had a couple or, um, and if he didn't hit them, he got to the line for three and obviously knocked him down because they just, they just couldn't miss those foul shots. Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, our Shabazz made circus shots look so routine that I don't even yeah. bother marking it down in my notes. I just say, unless it was like a consequential crazy three, I'm just like, yeah, Shabazz for three, even if it's like, yeah. you know, if, uh, I don't know, if, if Kemba had ever hit a shot like that, I would have capitalized Kemba with like 14 exclamation <laughs> points or something like that. Oh man, he he made the he made the improbable pretty routine, especially by yeah. that point. Obviously, earlier in his career, you know, he took those shots, and you 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 tore, tore your hair out every time. Took a while I to learn the trust. Described them as the no yes shots. Yes, as, uh, in the past show that we did. He's the king of that for sure. Um, any other observations from the rewatch? Um. On the UConn side, no. This one's more of a sentimental one, and it leans more toward Michigan State. I think everyone who watched that game knows the story of Adrian Payne and the friendship, the bond he had with the young Michigan State fan named Lacey, uh, who was battling cancer at the time, um, unfortunately passed away a couple weeks later. Um, It was just really um, 
it was really interesting to just see their bond in the days leading up to the game and then watching back, seeing her in the crowd and the, the broadcast talking about that relationship. Um, the day before, I had gotten to be um, part of the, you know, all the press availability and whatever. And Adrian Payne was there and he could not stop talking about how much he loved that young girl. Um, and in a way, it kind of made you hope Michigan State would win that game just because of, you know, how special it would have been for, for him and for her. And, um, you know, unfortunately she lost her battle, but that was just something that stood out to me was how special their bond was and the way they were able to connect their basketball. Yeah, that was, you know, that was a really cool story. And, you know, obviously, you know, you can kind of put the fandom aside. It would have, you know, had Michigan State won that game, it would have been such a special moment for all of them and, you know, for that girl and, you know, for Adrian Payne especially. You know, you know, it is, you know, it is that's just the nature of sports though i mean if you think about it like every big like elite eight or national championship game that's ever been won or lost you have just the elation and the heartbreak on both sides and everybody's deserving you know usually uh but um yeah no it's just kind of yeah would have been a great story i mean from our perspective as yukon fans I, i'm really grateful it went you know yukon's way but i guess it makes right. you you know had they lost, that would have definitely been something you could have been like, okay, well, that that stunk, but at least you know something good came out of it. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I had a, I had one more thought on this, just kind of rewatching it. You know, all these years later, I, most of the highlights I see usually involve that Niels Giffey dunk, and just kind of just remembering what he was that season, just this elite three point shooter. So it was a little surprising when I went back and realized that he was actually really bad in this game. <laughs> he um, he only had six points uh, on two of ten shooting, and he was 0 for 5 from 3, which felt very un-Niels Giffey-like, but obviously yeah. he, he had the highlight play. He had, the I think, a couple of free throws to kind of ice it at the end, too. So, I mean, his baskets were impactful. It was just kind of funny to just be like, wait, this isn't the Niels Giffey I remember from 2014. What's, what's going on here? Uh, that's actually, um, that does bring up something that stuck out to me as well. Um, just on a, an emotional level with Giffey, um, I think I mentioned on the Kentucky episode that I had spoken to him at Jim Calhoun's retirement press conference about the band that year. And he, like, I was just having a one-on-one with him and he told me that he felt like the NCAA had ripped something away from him and it wasn't fair that they like pretty much stolen it from him, the chance to play in the tournament. And he was like, I'm going to make sure that they remember that. I'm going to, like, I'm not going to forget that. And I don't want them to forget that either. And, you know, we talk about the emotion of getting back to the final four after all, all the things that had gone on. And I'm glad the broadcast picked it up because I've actually never gone back and watched this game. But I remember filming the final seconds and the team going to midcourt celebrating and Giffey kind of separating himself and just throwing his arms up in the air and screaming toward the roof and just like letting all the emotion flow out. And you could tell how much it meant to him. And I'm going back. I'm so glad that the broadcast picked that up because that's one of my personal favorite moments of that entire run uh, was just his elation afterward. And I remember asking him about it after the game and he was kind of getting emotional talking about it and what it meant to be going back to the final four after everything. And that was that's something that's always stuck with me from that game. He was a great, you know, yeah, he 
that dude was uh, the heart and soul of that run, really. I mean, you know, Shabazz, obviously Shabazz was like the catalyst to the run, but, you know, Niels, he was a part of the, he, he stuck through it all. I mean, you know, there weren't some, there was some pretty tough times in sophomore and junior year, but man, I mean, that guy deserved it. I mean, he's, he's one of my favorite UConn players ever. And I'm so, so I was so happy to see what he became as a senior and just like the ultimate three and D guy, just an absolute championship player. Even, even yeah. if, even if he didn't play a championship game in this particular game, but we'll forgive him. He did so much else for, for UConn. Yeah. I uh, feel like I always think of him as a cult hero, even though I feel like that may do him a little bit of disservice based on his accomplishments at the school, but he was kind of a cult hero in a way. Just you know, the way, especially the way he blew up that season from three, and you know, just everything about him. He was one of the most lovable players to come through campus. I mean, I think a cult hero is like an interesting way to describe somebody who's universally beloved. But maybe that's yeah. just me. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so the box score from this game is pretty interesting um before i had a couple of interesting observations but uh was there anything that stuck out to you just uh you know in terms of stats or anything notable there uh, a couple that we've touched on um the free throws the 21 to 22 from the line is just amazing um they and then keeping michigan state to just the the two guys in double figures i mean you know like you said, Payne with 13, Harris with 22, and then everyone else was really quiet. They only had uh, three, four other guys score, and you know the it was just really weird to see Dawson only finish with five and Appling with two, and um, it was just it was a lockdown performance on the defensive end from UConn, more or less. Yeah. Oh, you know, and that's funny too, just because that kind of dovetails into my main takeaway. There was hardly any bench scoring at all for either team. Very true. You have Michigan State's bench scores three points, and the only guy who really saw any minutes, uh, Travis Trice, he had zero points in 18 minutes. And, uh, you know, a couple of key turnovers too. So that's not good. Um, UConn actually somehow worse. Uh, Lasan Chroma was the only bench player to score a basket, and he had two points, and that was it. And then the other three guys, uh, Olander, um, Terrence Samuel, and Amita Brima, I was astonished. They combine. Are you familiar with a trillion, like the walk on, like back the, the walk on stat? Oh no. Okay, I got to describe this to you then. So it's like a, a whole joke among walk-ons where, you know, if you come into the game and you contribute nothing and your box score winds up being one minute played or maybe two minutes or three or whatever, followed by zero, 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 zero on everything else, then you, you, you got a trillion. That's incredible. UConn, UConn's other three bench players combined for 17 trillion. Yes. I mean, I guess... So Olander had three minutes and had no other stats. Uh, Terrence Samuel had four minutes and uh, no other stats. And Amita Brima, my God, he played 10 minutes and the only stats he contributed were three personal fouls. <laughs> he didn't even take a shot. 
Yeah. So I got it. So there could be some like, you know, club trillion people who could kind of give me the, the official ruling on whether or not a personal foul constitutes a stat. Cause technically, <laughs> technically that might be disqualifying, but for our purposes, I say it counts because that is absolutely insane. <laughs> None of, let them have it. <laughs> it's, a, it's just the fact that you, in an elite eight game, you have, you know, six guys really essentially really honestly just the starters because chroma you know his contributions were fairly small you know your almost entire bench is contributing almost nothing in 17 minutes of play that is really incredible and yet they won the game without too much drama like what what are the chances of that that was a like that was it was a weird game like that it was just and you know now that i say brima didn't take a shot we were also talking about how much like how much shooting both teams did from away from the away from the block. It was just it was a really weird game like that. It's just crazy that like Brima played ten minutes and he somehow didn't get an, a rebound or a block. He's usually yeah. good for at least one of either of those things, even if it's by accident. <laughs> and his fouls his fouls are crazy too. I mean, yeah. I I love Abita Brima too. I mean, don't you know it. His uh, you know, that play he made against St. Joe's in the first round was was so pretty much saved their season. But oh pretty my god, this game, th- but his game here was just hilarious. Like I'm watching, yeah. it's just like, dude, what are you doing, man? Like, like, <laughs> man, yeah. Uh, I don't want to dump on the guy, but yeah, it was very, it was tough. <laughs> it was a tough one for sure. I do have one other favorite. Now that I'm looking at the box score, go for it. Um, yeah, it's just a weird one. It. It's the last field goal, and they show you the time for Michigan State. It was at uh, it was at zero 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 zero. Um, we talked about like this game ending up being only a six point game, but it also was only a six point game because someone threw up a desperation three right at the buzzer and banked it in. Like it had no business going in whatsoever, and UConn would have had this game one by nine, but. It just got a little bit closer just because of that weird shot that no one cared about. Is that like, is, does that happen to UConn in these games more than anybody else? Because I can <laughs> I think feel of like sometimes it does. I can think of three distinct occasions where that exact scenario has happened. You have the end of the 2004 semifinals where Duke hits that kind of you know pointless three at the after the Okafor free throws. <laughs> You had this shot, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe Brandon Knight did it in the uh, semifinals for Kentucky uh, in 2011, too. I can go back and double-check, but if my memory serves, I'm pretty sure that happened. That checks out. Oh, my gosh. That does... I never even thought about that. That's amazing. That's that's three Elite Eight or Final Four games, and, yeah. like, yeah. I mean, in those other two cases, it was, like, made it a one-point game instead of four. So for this to be, like, you know, go from nine to six is a little bit less, you know, dramatic. Or I don't yeah, know. I, I don't know what the... I'm very appreciative of that. I don't know what the... <laughs> you, uh, you guys did the Arizona game um, recently, and the that last shot felt like it hung in the air for two hours. <laughs> like, it honestly, I felt like I aged multiple years as that ball was hanging in the air at the end of the game yeah oh absolutely so now just imagine that except you're some unaffiliated better and the ball's in the air and you're like no oh my gosh it's like i'm it's like like we were about to cover what the hell (laughs) or something I i don't know i don't do a lot of gambling so i don't know what i'm you know you want you want the all that stuff you probably go listen to bill simmons or something um, yeah, 
All right. So um, just one more thing real quick. Michigan State had 16 turnovers. UConn only six. Um, that's pretty good. Um, UConn being that low in turnovers is pretty pretty solid. And uh, Ryan Boatwright, four steals. Uh, a couple of really funny ones, too. Like he, he absolutely dominated his matchups a couple times. So yeah, good player. Great stuff. A um, couple of great crowd shots of, uh, you know, uh, Shabazz and Boatwright's moms, you know, freaking oh, yeah. out over stuff, too. Um, yeah. So how about the broadcast? Uh, what do you what do we think about the broadcast for this game? Um, I wrote down two things other than the Phil Nolan getting angry at Phil Nolan for dunking. My run through, I was only able to do the condensed highlights, admittedly. Um, so this must have cut off uh, in TCF's glorious work. Um, but there was a play in the first half where Shabazz had, uh, we were just talking about how there was, there were very little, uh, drives to the basket. This one, he had some acrobatic move where he like hops in, hops out, gets to the lane, gets the bucket. And Bill Raftery said something along the lines of like, get out the lingerie. And then it cuts off. And I just have so many questions about the context of that. <laughs> like, you know, now, what you, Bill, what? Now that you mention it, I do remember him saying that, and I can't remember why <laughs> or what I, the con. I need answers. I need to go back, and I need to find out why. I uh, mean, Bill, Bill Raftery. The I don't think "why" is the right question. I think yeah. th- there with him there isn't usually a lot of the times he just sort of says things, and there is no yeah, why. Yeah. It's like he and That's Bill Walton are like the two kings of that. It's like you don't ask questions; just go with it. Yeah. It's an experience. He, you just accept that that's part of who they are. The only other thing that I have written down um, is from the halftime scenario, uh, the halftime discussion, and all I wrote is Charles Barkley hates UConn. Uh, he hated that UConn team for sure. Oh my gosh, he really didn't like that UConn team. Um, he was very adamant that that game was pretty much over at four at a four point deficit at halftime. Um, he didn't. He didn't think that Napier and Boatwright were going to step up in the second half. He just he was convinced that Michigan State were the superior team. I think on paper they were the better team. I you know as I said I picked them to win the national championship. We, we talked about they were probably underseeded, but dude Charles chill. Like I feel like he just looked at the fact that they were a seven seed and said yeah that's it. So I, I was just like. Can you can you take it easy, Charles? Like just a little bit. Just accept that they've gotten this far. They're a decent team. They have championship winners on their team. They can do this. Yeah, I, I my personal theory with Barkley with that year's team was that he was personally offended by the, um, we'll just say the appalling lack of rebounding ability in UConn's front court that season. <laughs> I mean, if I'm Charles, if I'm Charles Barkley, and I look at that team and I see them keep winning just with the way they were winning i'm you know and of course charles barkley's like you know mr rebounding and everything he's probably just yeah. like man i cannot believe these guys like <laughs> what this is this is an affront to basketball or something i don't know that's just i have no there's no basis for that theory it's just kind of my my, my head cannon, as they say <laughs> fair enough um so yeah. So anyway, so Vern and Vern Lundquist and Bill Raftery are your commentators, and they were they were glorious. Uh, you have your random lingerie kind of 
comments. And so actually I got one that, um, I wish I had some context for cause it happened and then it was over. And I was like, wait, what did he just say? Uh, one of them quoted Donald Trump at some point oh boy. coming back from the halftime break. He said something. And of course, you know, 2014, like he's still basically just kind of, you know, an irritating Twitter personality and not, <laughs> you know, the president of the United States. So Raptor, yeah, I just kind of like went to Trump or something. So that was, I just caught it. That caught my ear. Um, <laughs> so one, one other funny thing, this game apparently was played the day before the series finale of how I met your mother. You feel old now or what? Yeah. Wow. I forgot about that. Yeah. They made a point. They made a comment. just like, yeah, yeah. So tomorrow night, you know, right after the, how I met your mother series finale. And I was just like, Oh damn. Wow. Huh? Yeah. That would I have been right the, around then. I watched the series finale in the daily campus newsroom. Fun fact. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> was that the, that was, yeah, I guess the next day, right? Would you have yeah. been, would you have been back that soon? Yeah. I actually, we, we went back that night cause we had like, we had a super quick turnaround to get to Texas. I actually, um, so we came back, I had to reschedule an exam that I was taking for that Monday, uh, cause we were flying out on the Tuesday and on the Monday or on the Sunday, we also, we also had the, um, budget meetings, the, you know, the weekly meetings. Wait. Yeah. So I, I think I was in there on a Monday. I can't remember my, my days are all mixed up right now. But I remember watching the finale in the Daily Campus newsroom and me and the editor-in-chief, Catherine, screaming at the TV. Or I should say the she was going to be the editor-in-chief. Um, we were screaming at the TV. Just like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I, I didn't but, watch that show very much, but my understand I definitely remember the finale being very divisive. Or, yeah, yeah, it was a very upsetting finale for me. <laughs> Well, all right. Well, let's not let's let's linger. Yeah, yeah, let's let's get back to, to that. that. We we've had a really good chat here. <laughs> let's yeah dive back into uh, one of the best UConn games ever. Um, yeah, I like. <laughs> so yeah, so um, yeah. I guess why don't why don't we just kind of uh, get to this part? Uh, you know, who's the top dog? Um, we have a a pick for who won the game, quote unquote. Um, I think again we have an easy choice here with Shabazz. Um, that's who I would definitely go with. 25 points, nine of nine from the line hit four threes. Um, he, you know, again, everything really seems to go through him. He was also the second leading rebounder in that game, um, had four assists and, you know, just, he was going to will them to, to a title. And you saw him really turn it on in the second half. And Charles Barkley said that he needed to be spectacular in order for them to get the win. And, you know, he, he turned it on and there they went. Yeah. I, a lot of times I like to kind of outthink myself with this sort of thing, but yeah, it's Shabazz. I mean, it's clearly Shabazz. He was the leading scorer for the team. And I mean, he was just, he was the guy. I mean, he, he, they made it as far as they did because of him. And this was very much a vintage Shabazz Napier performance. You have your theatrics, you have your, you know, he, he, he actually did, was one of the few guys who did occasionally drive to the hoop you know, he took some hard fouls and he unflappable. Yeah. He was great. Yeah, just a, another in a series of how Shabazz won a national title. So, um, yeah. So I'm trying to think. Like, we we got some more time. So any any other thoughts on this game, or just any other just you know memories of this season in general? Um, man, this was just every time we talk about this. I, I'm so glad that you asked me to do these two games because I just. I think about how special that season was um, for 
as you know for the lack of talent compared to other championship teams at UConn. Um, although I would maybe make a case that this one had more than the 2011 team. Uh, it certainly had more experience. This was probably the this was one of the most lovable teams just based on everything they had gone through. And I remember, you know, I was, I was a junior the year of the ban and you could just tell that it was this team that really pulled the campus together. Um, because, you know, everyone knew there was going to be no tournament for the men and they really, they took you along for a ride. And that, that year before when they went 20 and 10 and they got that 20th win on the final day of the season, you're like, this this felt like a special season in itself with beating Syracuse and starting the year with a win over Michigan State, and it just felt like there was something missing that we, you know, they really shouldn't have been banned in the first place, and it felt like there was something missing, and you wanted to come back the year later and see that thing come back with it, and sure enough, they go on that run after getting blown out by Louisville, and they don't win the conference title, but you're like, man... They, they've got it lined up to at least get to the Final Four. And losing in the Final Four isn't really UConn's thing. So, you know, Shabazz was just so spe- so so special. And the way he really carried that team to the title and everyone playing their role in between was just... It's one of the, one of the best seasons in UConn history. Without a doubt. Definitely, uh, certainly the most satisfying, I think. Just uh, considering everything that was going on, and yeah, I mean, and unfortunately, I mean, it, it did prove to be the high point. I mean, and it was very much the end of an era for sure, because like you know that technically was an American Athletic Conference season, but it felt like that was a Big East team. And yeah, that's uh, the other thing. Like the curtain was coming down after that year, no matter what. Yeah, and obviously, um, you know what's happened since that year has mostly not been good, but we've. This season, you know, this past season, the one that just ended, definitely had some 2013 vibes to it. You know, and it did. you know they, yeah. I mean, they didn't, they weren't banned from the postseason, but they ended up kind of, you know, obviously the coronavirus thing kind of had the same effect. You know, everybody sort of, they were, they were about to have a chance to do something maybe very special, and you know, they didn't get yeah. a chance to. But with the team they've got coming back, I mean, next year is going to could be really fun. Like it's going to be really good. I mean, there's going to be a lot to contend with in the Big East. Villanova and Creighton are both going to be really good. But, you know, a top three finish in the Big East is not out of the realm of possibility. And then, you know, UConn gets to march in the garden and, you know, say a prayer for everybody else that has to come up against them. It's going to be so much fun. I cannot wait. Tim, thank you so much for coming back on. This has been a blast. Um, so uh, I guess, uh, you know, anything, anything else you want to cover, anything you want to plug, anything like that before I let you go? <laughs> uh, not really. Just uh, to say that, first of all, thank you so much for having me back. Uh, again, this show is such an amazing idea and you've done such a great job with it. Um, I've loved being able to be part of two of your first 10 or so episodes here. And I'm always excited to come back on if, uh, if you'd like to have me back. But uh, just on a personal note, just... I hope everyone's doing well. I know this is a very tough time. Um, and I just want to say from for uh, the work that my team and I are doing at ESPN, the digital video team is doing a lot of work. So if you're a sports fan, there's still plenty of sports content for you to be watching, even with no games. If you 
you head over, check out what we're doing. We're trying to do a lot of fun stuff for you guys. That's good stuff. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, same goes for all the other sports writers and producers who are out there, uh, you know, putting out good stuff. You know, these are uh, strange and weird times, but uh, it's definitely a lot of good work being done still. So, um, yeah. So, Tim, thanks so much. Uh, you know, we'll have you back on at some point soon, I'm sure. And uh, all of you guys, thanks so much for listening. Uh, you know, you all know the drill. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Max Cerullo. Uh, that's M- uh, M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O. Uh, DMs are open. You can hit me up at email. Uh, yes, Yukon podcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, give us those five-star reviews. So, um, you know, yeah. Anyway, all right, guys. Thanks so much. We'll uh, talk to you all later. Bye.